preaching is found in 2 Peter 3, and particularly verses 15 and 16, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. We touched already on the first portion, yet we read the whole of these verses for clarity. Peter writes, "...an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction." Peter has already provided to our attention teaching regarding Scripture. We saw this in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he mentioned, verse 19, a more sure word of prophecy. And what a wonder that is, that the more sure word of prophecy is more sure than that experience that Peter had in hearing the voice of God. And what is it? Well, it's this, verse 20, No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Then he raises verse 1 of the next chapter, false prophets. And he's continued this vein of addressing these false teachers. But he's returned to true teaching, and he's appealed to the Scriptures. And particularly notice, he indicates that, as he says, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And he mentions in the next verse his epistles, all his epistles. And he connects them with the other scriptures. So one thing that we see is that it was not some later development, as some would contend, by which the church said, oh, these books are the books of scripture. There was a recognition of those books, but there was no council or assembly of the church that said, of all of the books written, we now determine that these books are the canon of Scripture. Peter knew from the very moment he came across Paul's writings that these were equivalent to, equal with, the other Scriptures. Scriptures which he mentions earlier of the old time when holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so he presents this truth that these New Testament writings, as we now call them, are equal in authority and of the same origin as the Old Testament Scriptures. But you'll notice that though they are of divine authority, yet this does not prevent men from twisting them. This is the essence of false teaching, the twisting, the upending, the contorting and abusing of the Scriptures. And this is followed by, as we'll see if the Lord gives us opportunity, with a warning, verse 17, that we should beware, lest ye also, that is, lest we, would be led away with the error of the wicked. 
What's interesting is those who contort and twist and pervert and abuse the Scriptures not only bring, as our passage indicates, about their own destruction, but actually leads others unto destruction as well. Now, lest we misunderstand the fact that there are hard things to be understood in the Scriptures and equate that with impossible to understand, and we shy away from the diligence with which we are to approach the Scriptures, consider then these three things this evening. Firstly, the nature of Scripture. Secondly, the difficulties in Scripture. And thirdly, the twisting of Scripture, all which by the Lord's blessing may help us then in our own study and listening to the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So notice the text points out, as indicated, that Paul has written unto the same audience. And he did so according to the wisdom given unto him. Not according to the wisdom he cultivated by natural means, though he was a most learned man. And these are the same as, in essence, the other Scriptures. So firstly, then, consider the nature of Scripture. One thing we note from this passage regarding what Scripture is, is its origin. It is, firstly, of divine origin. So we see that what Paul wrote in his epistles is the same as Scripture. It is Scripture. But notice, it is according to the wisdom given unto him. It's not something that he just went about and learned. It's something that God himself conveyed to Paul. It's something that God provided to Paul. We have no doubt but that the Lord caused Paul to study and to learn and other such things as this. But as far as writing the inspired Word of God, that is a great and divine gift that was given to him. And you see this earlier as when it says, verse 21 of the first chapter, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These prophets of old, Isaiah and others, Moses himself, didn't just sit down and say, you know what, this is a good insight I'm going to record. This is helpful and instructive. But rather, the Holy Ghost was working by and through, with and in them, to govern their thoughts and to bring about the very words that they wrote. Now, the Scriptures don't tell us much about what some call the mode of inspiration, what was going on in their minds and these kinds of things. And we see different ways and different times that this is done. But we do see that it is the Spirit who is superintending, governing, and guiding the very thoughts of those who gave us inerrant Scripture. Such that, as Paul in his own writing is able to say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. It's His very Word. So think of this for a moment. Every time you pick up the Word of God and read even one word, you're reading an inerrant and infallible Word divinely given by God. 
Sometimes there are those who say, you Protestants, you don't have the living voice of God. You don't have, as it were, some inspired prophet today. And we say with Peter, we have a more sure word of prophecy. For we have the very inspired record of God's holy word. We have his word. And what is it that men long for in their experience when they have, quote-unquote, mountaintop experiences and they escape away to hear the inner voice of God? They want to know God's thoughts. They want to know what He would convey to them. Well, brethren, here's the glory of what we have in the Scriptures. We have God's thoughts. We have His Word. We don't need to search within, for there's nothing within us of ourselves. We merely need to open our eyes and read the words which God has given. You think of it perhaps this way. A child who comes to his or her parent and says, you know, mom or dad, I'd like to know your thoughts on this topic. And mom or dad say, well, I've actually written something about that. I want you to read these words. The child takes that, whether it's a letter or something else, And they read it and say, okay, well, but mom or dad, what do you really think? And the parent would look and say, what are you talking about? I've told you what I think in my word. I've given you my word. And likewise for us, we don't need to go to God and say, okay, you know, we've got these 66 books. We have the prophecies of the Old Testament. We have the writings of the New Testament. But we really want to know now today what you think. Now, it's true in the illustration, the child may say to the parent, but have you changed your mind? You know, you wrote this five years ago. You wrote this a little while ago. You thought this yesterday. Maybe you've come across some new discovery that makes you say, you know what, I was wrong about what I wrote there. But brethren, think of this. The Scriptures written, though by Paul and Peter, who were time-bound themselves, though by Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years earlier, Though they are written in particular contexts and cultures and history, yet the words that they write and record and provide to us are preeminently God's words. They're His thoughts. And so they transcend time. It's not as if we have to say, well, God's cultural standards back in the first century were such, but we've progressed, and so now we need to find out what His new standards are. No, God doesn't progress. God is perfect. God is infinitely good, infinitely holy. He has perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom. And so when we come to the Scriptures, we must remind ourselves, yes, we come to those which were written in particular times. And yes, we need to understand in context these things. But we come to these words which are God's words. And whereas men are fallible and may change, God isn't fallible. God doesn't change. Someone says, well, what about Paul and Peter? They were but men. Oh, it's true. But they didn't speak according to their own wisdom. Notice what Peter says. He spoke, he wrote according to the wisdom given unto him. God gave Paul wisdom. Peter said of the earlier prophets, that they didn't speak by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved 
by the Holy Ghost. So here's the wonder of what we call inspiration. Though there are men who of themselves are able to err and do err, yet when it is that the Spirit worked by and in and through them, He worked that they wrote infallibly the Word of God. So we have no cause of even hesitating for a moment's notice over one sentence in the Scriptures because they are God's words, so the divine origin. And as indicated, the nature of written Scripture, which the word Scripture means that which is written, is, of course, to acknowledge that this divine origin of wisdom is then conveyed by appointed men. No one says, you know what, God, I'll write Scripture now. None of us would stand before and say, you know what, I think we need a new book. And certainly Paul and Peter and John and James didn't do that, sitting there saying, you know, this Old Testament, it's pretty old. We need to write something new. Rather, God conveys to these appointed men the words and timing of the things to write, the wisdom given unto him. Whereas wisdom, generally speaking, as the discerning of God's teaching as far as we should live, is available to us all, not the wisdom here which Peter speaks of. For he's speaking of that type of wisdom required in order to write Holy Scripture. And it's given unto him. That wisdom isn't given unto all us. This is equivalent to what he says. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so the Scriptures are written by men appointed, holy men, godly men, men by whom the Lord worked that we may receive a written and infallible and an errant record of the divine will of God. This is Scripture. It's God's written word. Secondly, the difficulties in Scripture. We can start by noting the scope of these difficulties. Sometimes people make much of difficulties. But you'll notice firstly that Peter indicates the scope. He says, verse 16, in which are some things hard to be understood. That's not something to skip past. It doesn't say all things are hard to be understood. It doesn't even say most things are hard to be understood. It says some things, not all. Indeed, most is abundantly clear, without hesitation, able to be understood. So long as we understand language, we can understood, understand the majority of all Holy Scripture without great struggle. But there are some things that are hard to be understood. Some things are difficult, we could say, perhaps, to help us understand. You know, certain prophetic words are difficult until they come to pass to understand all of the details that were bound up in those passages. We saw that at the advent of Christ, how many things were brought together, and all of a sudden it's clear as day to us But it was difficult to be discerned how all these things would be worked together 
to those who were before that day. It was hard to understand. You find none less than Daniel, a prophet of God, praying and laboring over the prophecy of Jeremiah, seeking to understand the meaning of the days. There were some things, even to a prophet, which were hard to be understood. However, though this is true, never forget that the scope is small. There are some things. But with the difficulties, notice the nature of these difficulties. It says they're hard to be understood. It doesn't say they're impossible to understand. It doesn't say that it's beyond your ability to understand. It simply notes that they're hard to understand. Now, in our culture, that may be equivalent to saying impossible. Why? Why would we say that? Because our culture doesn't like hard things. We come face to face with something hard and we say, I don't got the energy for that. I don't have the time for that. I want it broken down. I want it instantaneous. I want it immediately understood. But the things which are hard demand time. They demand meditation. They demand humility. They demand prayer. They demand care. They demand diligence. Now, the things we just mentioned are no marks of our culture. Our culture gets frustrated when at a fast food restaurant, the order that was given one minute prior is taking three extra minutes to prepare. Four minutes for a meal. And our culture is instantly frustrated. And you'll hear and see and witness these exchanges of people complaining and shouting and frustrated about the longevity of two, three, four minutes. It's hard. People speak of, well, it's difficult. You know, you see this, don't you? You go to a place where there's a line and someone shows up at the line and instantly, within 10 seconds, puts their hand in their pocket, pulls out their smartphone, and can't bear to take five minutes' time of sitting still, but has to be scrolling through things because it's hard to sit still. People complain about these kinds of things. But all the purpose of our focusing on it is to indicate that hard in our day often means, not by nature of what it is, but by nature of our laziness, impossible. But remember, the Scriptures have some things which are hard. That means you and I will come to things which we face and we say, I'm not sure what that means. And we'll be faced with a question, will I submit myself to God's Word and give myself to prayer and counsel and godly conversation with other believers to try and come to understand this Word? Or will I simply say, not for me, not going to care about it? The nature of these difficulties in that they're hard reminds us they're not impossible And so never should the believer think, well, I'll never figure it out. Because it doesn't say that. It simply says they're hard to understand. Much less should the believer say, no one will ever figure it out. There's this acceptable ignorance in the church today saying, well, you know, the church will never figure those things out. And really what's meant by that is, I can't figure it out. 
and so surely no one else is going to figure it out. But the Scriptures, though they have things that are hard to understand, simply then means that though they are hard to be understood, they can be understood with divine help, with divine provision, with divine grace. And so as we come to those things which are difficult to understand, let us not despair of understanding, but rather remember Christ who said this, If I go, I'll send another comforter, an advocate. And what among other things will he do? But lead us into all truth. The same Spirit who gives the Word also enlightens our understanding of His Word. So we speak of inspiration, and by that term, we're speaking of the Scriptures themselves. They are divinely inspired. They are God-breathed. Christians today shouldn't technically speak of being inspired in that kind of way, because we're not prophets today. We aren't apostles today. We aren't given that divine gift today. Though that's the case... We acknowledge that the same Spirit which gave the Word helps us to understand the Word, which we speak of His illumining our minds. He causes the light of God's Word to be understood and discerned by our minds as He leads us into truth. And we move then thirdly to consider the twisting of Scripture, which is One of the main features of this text. Firstly, note what this twisting is. Peter uses the term rest. And so he says that they that are unlearned and unstable rest. And the children will note, if they're looking at it, that it's similar to our term wrestle. The idea in the Greek is that these distort, they twist, they contort, They abuse the Scriptures. The idea is that they handle them wrongly. Instead of bringing the Scriptures, as it were, in their purity and in their meaning and presenting it to others, they take the Scriptures and they contort it and twist it and make it into something else. Now, children, you can think of it this way. You think of those uh, entertainers that take a balloon and they twist it this way and they twist it that way and out comes some likeness of uh, an animal. And so they take this long balloon and they twist it up to make it look like something else. Well, that makes a child smile. It makes us wonder how it can be done. And eventually you hear all sorts of popping balloons as children try the same, not knowing how to do it. However, here the idea is taking something that is good and wholesome and instead of delivering it in its good and wholesome way, here these, notice the language, unlearned and unstable men, they wrestle it, they contort and twist it, so what was beautiful and pure and holy is now made horrid and ugly and corrupt. So they take the text that God has given and they turn it to a different meaning give you an example of how this is done in our own day. Perhaps you and I wrongly fear the expression that is given to us in Holy Scripture, 1 John and verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 16, wherein we read that God is love. 
Well, brethren, if we fear that expression, it's not because of the expression itself. It's because of the contorted ways that the culture has twisted that word. We should come to that passage tremendously full of rejoicing that it is said that God is love. We need to give no inch to those who would try to take this beloved and precious text and twist it in the ways that we know. How do they twist it? Well, they take such a passage and they say, well, since God is love, He loves all people just the way they are. And so it would be wrong of you to go and say you need to repent because God loves them just like that. And so you see this as you drive down the road and you see churches with their you know, uh, signs and it says, you know, God loves you just as you are. And these things. And even well-intending evangelicals blow this passage up when they buy airtime on the radio or they buy time on the television and they say things along those lines, well, God is love and He loves you just like you are. There's no need for you to repent. There's no need for you to turn. That's twisting the meaning of the passage. Notice even in context, we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. And he that dwelleth in love, or God is love, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because feareth torment. He that feareth is not made Perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, how whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment hath we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now we don't need to open the whole epistle, but we've read now the context of this expression. And the context links us to the whole of this epistle, which speaks of God loving us and redeeming us and drawing us out of sin, that we would be brought into fellowship with Christ and be made like Him in holiness and in love and in faithfulness. And so, we can come to passages in this that speaks of those who would say, I know Him, and yet keep not His commandments and then John doesn't say in 1 John 2, 4, well, the one who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is just a little mistaken and God loves him still anyway, just the way he is. What is this one who's just said, chapter 4, God is love, then moved to say? He says, that man is a liar. The truth is not in him. You see, the world today cuts out the meaning of the Word of God written, in order to take away the words and employ them in a different way than they actually are intending. This is what it means to twist and distort. It's not equal to every misinterpretation, but it's rather that purposed wrestling of the Word into a meaning other than it has. Who is guilty of this? Well, particularly, Peter indicates 
the unlearned and the unstable. It's an interesting word that's translated unlearned. It could be translated the non-disciple. The one who is not submitting himself to God's word, but rather stands independent and stands as the one who is the master instead of the disciple learning of Christ. And oh, what a shameful thing it is when men would call themselves Christian and yet fail to be his disciple. One thing that this word would indicate is not so much that they're learning intellectually, academically wanting, though it can include that, but rather that their life is not under the learning of Christ. They haven't brought themselves under Christ. They haven't submitted themselves to Him. And in that way, they're unlearned. They're, we could say, undisciples. They aren't following Christ. Never is it the idea that in order to learn Scripture, we become masters over Scripture. Rather, it's actually quite the opposite. In order to learn Scripture, we become students of Scripture. We submit ourselves to Scripture. And so you hear even today of that which has been called higher criticism, which stands, as it were, above Scripture and says, well, we're going to make plain what really is meant here and what belongs in Scripture and what doesn't belong in Scripture. We'll cut this out because it doesn't really fit with what's truly good. We'll cut that out because, well, who really believes in the miraculous? We'll remove that because, really, we don't know of any angels today or demons today or witches today or this today. We don't know of these miracles today, so let's just be honest. None of that's real, and they set it aside. That's to prove what Peter has said. They may have credentials that run paragraphs in length, but they still stand as those who are unlearned because they have failed to learn from the Master. Which means, by the way, you may have no credentials after your name. You may not have passed high school. You may not have gone on to higher degrees. And yet if a disciple submitting unto Christ, yet you stand as one who has learned and taught of Him. You remember the disciples when preaching were sort of wondered at. Christ when preaching was wondered at. How does this man so teach and preach? Does he have letters? Does he learn? Does he have degrees? Is the kind of question well, the apostles were learned in the lessons of Christ. The other word that's used is unstable. The idea is that they're never settled. They're never well-founded. Elsewhere in Scripture, they're like moving stars. You can't navigate by them because they're moving here and they're moving there and you're following that which is unstable. Well, these who turn the Scriptures are constantly moving from this position to another position to another position. They're unstable. And as you think of it, people will come to mind who once they were of this persuasion and now, well, they have better insight. They're of that persuasion. Well, now they move to another persuasion and so on. And it's not that they're just moving within, as it were, the orb of Christianity, but they jump 
stock and they move wholesale to a different position. We meet one who was a charismatic, who becomes Reformed, who becomes Roman Catholic, who becomes Eastern Orthodox, who becomes who knows what else. They're unstable. They're not moving from a position of less maturity to greater maturity. They're moving absolutely. And this is the idea here. They're unstable. And it's these who are resting, twisting, this even hard-to-be-understood passages. This is why throughout church history, men have warned their congregations against those who say, no one's ever seen what I'm about to tell you from God's Word. I have new insight that no one has ever perceived before. Because part of being a disciple is submitting to the Scriptures and ever returning to the Scriptures. It's a profane thing the way that people have turned what is ascribed to the Reformation, Semper Reformata, always reforming, and turning that into an always changing idea. And so this is put across even in quasi-reformed circles saying, well, we shouldn't really learn the ways of old because we're always reforming, right? We need to be changing and need to be moving things along. But actually, the one who actually wrote that phrase first, and as it's been used throughout history, is not an always changing from one doctrine to a new doctrine, one form of worship to a new form of worship, one practice to another practice, but rather the idea is that we are always returning to God's Word. We're always being formed by God's Word. We're always being brought under God's Word. His Word is always stable and is transforming us. The idea of always reforming is not always changing. It's always being made more sure in the form that God has given by His Word. That's what always reforming means. We could hope that in our day, men would learn the meaning of such a passage. That we would be stable and reformed by God's Word. Well, to what end is this twisting of Scripture? It is to their own destruction. Think of that word, the idea which has been presented in this chapter already, that the world shall be destroyed. And these who scoffingly twist, contort, and abuse the Scriptures themselves shall be destroyed as well. It doesn't matter how many people they had following them. It doesn't matter how influential a so-called church they've established. It doesn't matter how many books they've sold, how many conferences they've spoken at. It doesn't matter how many Uh, subscribers they have on their YouTube channel. It doesn't matter any of that. If they have abused the Scriptures, they will be destroyed. So when people say, well, how could it be wrong? Look at how many people follow them. They're asking the wrong question implicitly. Because the question they're asking in their mind is something along these lines. Or these lines. The question they're asking is something like, how can we know 
who is a true teacher of God? And they answer it this way, by seeing how many people follow them. Whereas the way of asking and answering the question is, how shall we know who are the true teachers of God? Those who teach his word truly. That's how we know. It doesn't have to do with numbers, though we plead with God to cause more to embrace the truth. And so those who are guilty of abusing the Scriptures stand certain of their own destruction. Brethren, surely from these things we should take warning, not only in how we must take care in handling the Scriptures, but in how we listen to others who handle the Scriptures. That we should be sure to be those who handle the Scriptures with reverence. It also warns us against simply passing by or flippantly looking at a passage hard to be understood and say, well, I guess that means this or that. But when we come face to face with a hard-to-understand passage, it calls us first to humility, asking the Master to instruct us that we then would be led to understand these things. It may be true that for whatever purpose the Lord doesn't grant us immediate understanding. It may be true that even in our lifetime He doesn't grant us understanding. But this doesn't mean that we say to ourselves, well, I'm not going to give my... know precisely how long Jeremiah labored to understand Daniel, or Daniel labored to understand Jeremiah. But we do have the fact that it was a season that passed of tremendous meditation. And when it was he understood by the Lord's help the meaning of these days, he was given such a sight of the glorious thing of Christ that rewarded all of his diligence in prayer and understanding. And likewise, may we say the same for ourselves. That as we labor in humble prayer, dependent upon the Spirit, and labor to understand, should the Lord give us that understanding, oh, the blessings are then ours. So the warning, but likewise, there is an exhortation for us here that we should take care, certainly with reverence, to approach God's Word and ensure that we're doing so that we may understand its meaning and not the meaning we hope it has for us. To do this, above all else, we must be diligent in prayer. It's not the only thing, but it is preeminent. Because who better to tell us and lead us into understanding than the author of it? So you can think of it this way. An author writes a book, and the book that's written starts to get a reception, and you have different schools of thought as to what it means. Well, how helpful it is if the author's alive to say, well, I hear what some are saying here and there, but this is what I mean by it. This is the meaning that's intended by it. It's helpful. It settles the matter. It causes us to understand. Oh, think of how philosophical students would be helped were Aristotle or Plato to stand today and say, this is what I mean by these things. Well, how much so, and what a privilege it is for the Christian in coming to something that exceeds Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and others of those 
pagan philosophers when we have the Word of God. And yet, what hope do we have that we should ever be able to discern His meaning? Well, much, because the same Spirit who gave the Word is provided to us to lead us to understand the Word. And so we pray in dependence, and this is modeled for us in the Scriptures. You can't get through the Psalter, and particularly Psalm 119, without petition after petition arising to the courts of heaven and saying things like, Open my eyes. Give me understanding. Lead me in a plain path. Let your light shine, and so on. It's showing the cultivated piety of approaching God's Word, which begins and ends with prayer. Oh God, I long to know this. But let's notice that though it begins and ends with it, it leads to the diligent study of God's Word. We don't come to understand God's Word simply by praying and have some, having some mystical experience. We pray and we give our souls weight to laboring to understand the Scriptures. How do we do that? Well, if it is that the unlearned and unstable rest, they tear, they twist the Scriptures, we labor to see it in context. Not lifting a passage out of context, but reading it in context, seeing what surrounds it, seeing what follows, seeing how this author uses those ideas elsewhere. And so we labor to understand it in context. We compare it with other scriptures. We take this passage and we compare it with others. You see this in the book of Hebrews where passage after passage is lined up with one another. And what's it doing? But it's showing us what others have called the analogy or the unity of scripture. That as it's all from the same God, we can take the scriptures knowing that there will not be a contradiction And we can say, okay, this is hard to understand. What on this topic has been written in clearer ways elsewhere? And we labor to understand that, which gives us an ability to see boundaries, perhaps, and other ways of perceiving the difficult passages in light of the easier. We can glean help from godly men who are charged with teaching God's Word. This is not something that ought to be overlooked, but rather to be leaned into. Whereas we rejoice with the Advent over the past 50-60 years of uh, personal Bible study, we fear that it has actually hindered the growth of the individual in many ways because there has been an abuse that has arisen which, as it were, thinks that the individual should stand upon his own private Bible readings as something more intimate, more advanced, more helpful than the public proclamation and teaching of his word, when actually the scriptures have that in a different order. The public reading, the public preaching, the public proclamation is primary. That's the priority with which then we accompany our private reading and understanding. So you think of how the Bereans worked. They heard Paul preach. They attended upon his word. And then they studied God's word. They were benefited and helped by that. Then they searched the scriptures. Both need to be in place for the Christian. But the priority is the public proclamation and teaching 
Scripture. You see this in those historical books when Nehemiah, for instance, Ezra, they gather the people together. The Word is read. And then those charged with it by office of God are helping the people understand. But this hasn't changed. This is the very point of Ephesians chapter 4. When Christ ascended, He gave gifts unto men. Verse 11, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for what purpose? Well, some would say, so that men could then sort of go about their own private individual efforts. No! For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and so on. The ministry is given as a means to help our individual understanding. And so the one who says, you know what, I've got this. I've got commentaries. I've got the Bible. I'll go figure this out is actually missing a key feature of the Bible's message. It's the king's order to depend, submitting preeminently to the king, but nonetheless depending on those means he supplies by the ministry. We don't elevate the ministry to be equal with Christ, but just as other helps he provides, we receive the ministry as that which Christ has afforded to us for our personal benefit. And likewise, do we speak with other godly men and women? We speak as fellow Christians, and as iron sharpens iron, so brother and sister sharpen one another in the meditation and consideration of God's Word. And if we go about these things, God by His blessing keeps us from distorting the passages of Scripture to our own demise. And brethren, if there is destruction to those who rest the Scriptures, what is there but blessing to those who receive the Scriptures and embrace the Scriptures as they are intended? And finally, from warning and exhortation, What a cause of thanksgiving, twofold reason. Firstly, think of this for a moment. If it's possible with a new mind, first time hearing it, God has given us His Word. Think of how simple a statement that is, and yet how profound. The living God of heaven and earth has delivered unto us His Word so that we have the Word of God. We have the mind of God. We have the teaching, instruction, guidance of God. God has given us His thoughts. This is a cause of thanksgiving. We imagine that men would think themselves blessed if they had an answer to one question from God, sometimes it's, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask Him? Perhaps that can be used with spiritual prophet to consider things. But think of this for a moment. Not only does God supply us His mind on a question, He supplies us His mind on the question. 
How might I, who am sinful, be reconciled to God who is holy? How might I be restored to fellowship with God? How might I worship and serve God? How might I live for God? What would God have me to do? The question, children, you know the question. What is the chief end of man? And you would think right away, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What a beautiful answer that is. And then it goes on. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? What's the answer? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. God has given us His Word to guide us in the highest calling of glorifying and enjoying Him. It doesn't just answer a question. It answers the greatest question and many associated questions. So a cause of thanksgiving in that fact alone But another cause, brethren, has He not led you to understand much of the Scriptures? Has He not led you to understand the meaning of the Scriptures? Perhaps you can imagine a person who has a copy of a Bible not knowing the language it's written in and thinking to themselves, oh, what a privilege, I have the Word of God. But oh, what a difficulty it would be to have it in a language unknown to you and to me and to know that in the covers of that precious book is the Word of the living God and yet it's locked in a language that we can't understand. But oh, God has brought to us His Word that we may understand it and that we do understand it. And though there are some things that are hard to be understood, Are there not many things that you've already understood? That God has privileged you to understand? That God has given to you to understand? And so, yes, rejoice that there are Scriptures, but never forget to remember that He's brought you to understand those Scriptures, which is a cause of everlasting thanksgiving, and that for all believers in Christ. Would you stand with me? for prayer.